Welcome everyone. This is Molly Rowan Leach, your host of the ongoing telecouncil series, Restorative Justice on the Rise. This archive is from October 11, 2012 and features the incredible Sujata Baliga. Sujata is with the National Council on Crime and Delinquency and heads up its restorative justice project as well as many other aspects of her work in the field. This conversation was a powerful one and included finer points as to how to work on the ground to implement restorative practices in your community and with existing systems. Please visit her website at nccdglobal.org and also access the telecouncil series and the schedule as well as archives at dopeace.us. Thank you and enjoy this conversation and counsel with Sujata Baliga. Good evening, everyone, and such a warm welcome to you all. This is Molly Rowan Leach, your host for Restorative Justice on the Rise. This is a telecouncil series, as many of you may know, that has been ongoing since its inception uh, a little over a year ago. So this is the second season, and now it is co-hosted by the Peace Alliance, which is a wonderful thing and a great honor. So um, tonight, we'll get started here in a moment by introducing our amazing special guest, but I just wanted to welcome those of you that haven't been here before with just a few guidelines as to how our hour together works and a little bit about the intention of this space. Restorative Justice on the Rise was um, something that I brought forward as a gift of service from my own experience in my life. Uh, I happen to have a parent who's incarcerated and I have seen, as I was talking with our, our guest Sujata, uh, just a moment ago in the green room, um, I would hope that this council and all the incredible conversations that we have had with so many different people from all over the world would be a place for education and connection, understanding, and, you know, a realization that restorative practices, restorative justice is nothing new. We have the inherent coding to bring it back fully into our systems. And so this space, its intention is to do those things as well as to welcome people from wherever they are on the path to connect, to ask questions, to feel a part of the circle so that this isn't just an interview per se. So as we go through the night tonight, like we do every time, please feel free to press one on your keypad if you have a question or a comment. And also I invite you to go to dopeace.us, that's D-O-P-E-A-C-E dot U-S, and get involved there um, at the Restorative Justice tab where there's a schedule of all the upcoming guests of, of all the archives, including the last two archives were current on the audio recordings. Those are all free to stream online and listen in as well as last year's archives. So um, there's a discussion board there too, and, and down the road we're hoping to, to create a bit of a, a library and a platform 
for people to add their um, their educational resources and, and materials. So without further ado, tonight's guest, I am so inspired by her work. And interestingly enough, it was thanks to a Tikkun issue, which I mentioned in our last telecouncil, uh, the restorative justice feature issue from this last winter. Um, Sujata Baliga is her name, and if you aren't familiar with her work, um, you're going to be delighted to, to listen to her and to share with her tonight. Her article that I'm mentioning is called The Day the Jail Walls Cracked, A Restorative Plea Deal. And you can find that in the January edition of Tikkun from this last year. Sujata is, uh, she has an incredible background. And um, one of the things that she's done with her experience, um, she'll be sharing quite a bit about that in the beginning of our call tonight. But she has this remarkable training, um, including uh, JD, I believe, from Harvard Law School. She was, um, let's see here, she was awarded a Soros Justice Fellowship. She used that to spearhead a successful restorative juvenile diversion program in Alameda County, where she resides now. She also served as a consultant to the Stanford Criminal Justice Center for a symposium titled Rights Needs Power, the Victim in Criminal Justice. She's been on NPR's Talk of the Nation, and she often speaks with groups of incarcerated people about her personal experiences. Today, she is the director of the Restorative Justice Pro Project at the National Council on Crime and Delinquency. This uh, project was recently awarded a multi-year grant, and we're going to be finding much more about uh, this from her tonight. So without further ado, and with a very warm welcome, and it's such an honor to have you with us tonight, Sujata, can you um, start tonight by sharing what brought you into this work and any stories you'd like to share. Welcome. Sure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Molly, for having me, and um, so happy to be here uh, with you and with everyone who's listening in tonight. And um, really open to people's questions and thoughts. Uh, so don't don't hesitate uh, to make this really interactive. Um, and Molly, I also want to just thank you for your archive. I've been poking around in it, and it's, uh, I was just emailing uh, Kay Pranis and Howard Zare tonight and saying, what we really need is a, a repository of sort of most frequently asked questions by your, your students and mentees so you don't have to write us and call us over and over again. And then I thought, you know, this is exactly what we need, is recordings like the ones you're putting together, um, Molly, so I really appreciate it. Uh, and, um, so, so the question about um, how I came to the work. So my personal journey was that um, when I was 24 years old, I was uh, on the eve of going to law school. Um, it was actually Penn Law School. Um, I, went to, I went to Harvard undergrad. I went to Penn Law School. And um, I was um, between college and law school, I spent some time um, working with battered women's shelters and with children who were abused. And uh, at that time, I was in India uh, with my then uh, boyfriend, who was trying to set up a school for the children of HIV-positive uh, 
prostitutes in Bombay's red light district. And uh, many of them were girls who were, um, prostitutes is a euphemism, they were girls who were sold or, or unsuspectingly, you know, sent to Bombay by their parents to get a good job and were uh, basically in sexual slavery. And the work was just far too depressing for me. I, I tended to be a doer and a worker, and I was uh, really struggling with the work on a lot of different levels and decided that I needed to step away because I was filled with just an amazing amount of rage and uh, blinding rage. And so I, uh, at, at everyone who was involved in this horrific system that abused such, such young, beautiful girls. And I uh, ended up uh, backpacking and ending up in, and I ended up in Dharamshala, which is where the Tibetan community in exile, uh, where the, the Dalai Lama's um, sort of government in exile was uh, and is to this day. And so I um, had the wonderful fortune of befriending some just random Tibetan families who were kind of curious about me because I guess back in 1995 uh, it was a bit of an anomaly for an Indian girl with a backpack and an American accent uh, to be wandering around by herself. And so people took um, interest in me. And I would be at people's dinner tables and hear the most unbelievable stories of trauma um, and of loss in people's efforts to escape uh, Tibet and, um, and come to India. And, and then a few moments later, these same people would be incredibly happy, uh, laughing, joking, smiling, and, I, and I, I was just really consumed by my own personal anger and rage. And uh, it was the first time when people really were asking me, what are, what are you so angry about, and uh, what can't you let go? And, and that's when I really started to dig deeply into my own personal history of abuse and why I was doing this work, uh, which was that I was sexually abused by my father throughout my childhood and adolescence, and I, I was pouring my... Uh, my anger at this into work for others, which was somewhat positive, but also not really directly taking on what I needed to do, which was my own healing journey. And so this, through this wonderful random course of events, you know, people just kept encouraging me to write to His Holiness and say, um, to ask him, what does one do about, so when I would ask them, how are you so happy? How, how do you manage after what you've been through, losing children, losing your family, losing your homeland, uh, entire monasteries raised, all kinds of atrocities that are just unthinkable to me. How are you happy? And, and they would uniformly give the same answer, which was forgiveness. And uh, so this I found astounding and um, sort of incomprehensible. And uh, so and in sharing my own stuff with them, uh, I kept getting the answer, you should ask His Holiness about forgiveness and intrafamilial abuse. You should ask him. And my response was always, he's busy. I'm not going to trouble him with this. And um, eventually I sat down and wrote him a letter, um, which was not directly about my own history. What the question was, was how does one work on behalf of abused and oppressed people without mm -hmm. anger as the motive? factor. How do we work on behalf of, of that? And so by a strange course of events, I don't remember if it was weather or political turbulence or something in Assam, which is where His Holiness was supposed to be going uh, for a, a trip at that time. He, he had to cancel his trip to Assam, and I got a response back saying um, that His Holiness would like to give me a private audience to discuss that with him. Mm. And so in my in my one hour with His Holiness, um, a few days later, um, I really just grappled for the first time with this impetus I had had to forgive my father, who had passed away several years earlier, 
uh, for having abused me. And um, so through the course of all of this, uh, I got some wonderful advice from His Holiness, which was um, the first piece was, well, the first thing he said was, are you sure you've been angry long enough? And uh, <laughs> which I thought was <laughs> coming from him. And the second thing, you know, he said was, and, I, and when I surveyed anger's impact on my life, I decided, yes, indeed, I have been angry long enough. I had blinding migraines and stomach problems, and my personal relationships were a disaster, and I guess I was not nearly as effective um, for the people I was hoping to help uh, than I than mm. I would be. I felt with anger, and so that's, a, that's an incredible it. comment. I, excuse me, but I, I, I oh, just please. that is just so amazing what he said, and it really that there's such power in in that that question slash comment, isn't there? And and applicable yeah. to to all of us in in our in how we approach our service. Mm. And and really and just a lot of yeah, and understanding and permission. Um, and the one thing I can say that was so astounding about being in his presence and sharing about what I had been through in my childhood and crying with him and was this just literally palpable compassion. I literally felt it coming off of his body. I'd never, I've never been in the presence of that kind of deep listening and a complete presence, a really holy, holy presence. And so... Um, so then I, when I said, yes, I am done, I am done being as angry as I am, he, he said, so I have two pieces of advice for you. The first is that anger is a mind run amok. It's, it's out of control, and, and you need to rein it back in. And so I would suggest that you develop a meditation practice. And, uh, and the second is um, that you uh, consider in some way opening your heart and aligning your, yourself in some way with your enemies. And, and so I was about to start a few. Uh, I, I was about to leave India and go back to the states to start law school, where I was planning to be a prosecutor and lock up the people who do harm to women and children. And so when he said, "Align yourself with your enemies," I laughed out loud and I said, "You know, I'm about to." Leave. So he, he patted uh-huh. my knee and he said, "Okay, okay, then you you just meditate. <laughs> you just need to try meditation." <laughs> So a few weeks later, I was found myself in a 10-day Vipassana course, uh, and on the 10th day, um, during the practice, the teaching of uh, loving kindness, I had a spontaneous experience of full forgiveness of my father, um, after which all my migraines, stomach problems, health problems, relationship issues, everything just went away. And um, and uh, started law school a couple weeks later and realized I did not have a prosecutorial bone in my body, and then there was Another series of events ended up becoming a defense attorney for many years, um, but uh, returned to have a second audience with His Holiness a few years later, and um, there became really interested in the Tibetan system of justice prior to Chinese occupation and, and uh, what it had to teach uh, about better ways of approaching the law. And at this point, I hadn't really even heard the words restorative justice. Um, and uh, so that, that was a real... Um, awakening moment for me. I read a book uh, called The Golden Yoke um, and uh, Y-O-K-E and it's about um, written by Rebecca Redwood French and she is both an anthropologist and an attorney and so it was, a, it was an amazingly fascinating uh, academic read on, um, on sort of the architecture of the Tibetan criminal justice system and I 
uh, I fell in love with it. I mean, it had principles of reconciliation. Victims always came first. What, what, how people, agreement on the facts of what occurred. Um, there was this real interest in meeting victims' needs being the purpose of, of a court process. <laughs> and so I, um, I would tell my friend back in the States who was a capital defense lawyer about this, and she said, Sajatha, you're talking about the principles of restorative justice. So I think mm. she sent me a book in India. Um, I think it was the first thing I read was Mark Yancey's Sexual Offending and Restoration, which I, I, it just blew my mind. I was like, yes, this is it. This is the answer. Um, and just got really, really excited. So shortly thereafter, I read everything Howard Zare wrote and started going to circle trainings and family group conferencing trainings and every single training I could get my hands on. Mm. So that was wow. That's the path to for me. Yeah. Wow. Well, and, and as far as the um, uh, that understanding of, of um, you know, have you been angry an, uh, long enough? Uh, you know, it has mm-hmm. it, it's also it seems so important that we um, we honor how things have affected us and have our own understanding of 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 um, the timing of these things because we we can't force. Um, a victim or a, a perpetrator to come, you know, in in these processes. We we would hope that they might be willing, <laughs> but um, it, our human processes are very wrapped into into restorative justice and practices. And how, how do we work with those? How do how do we how do we honor um, each other in in these processes while still um, Making it clear how beneficial restorative justice and and how you know how it like you, on your website here at the National Council on Crime and Delinquency you you know it's very clearly stated that you're you are equally committed to uh, victims mm-hmm. and offenders and um, I just I love that because that that brings it to the next level of of honoring you know that that we all have a place uh, uh, we we all have a wound. And we're all, you know, working towards um, fairness here and accountability, of course. But there, but there's something drastically missing in in the system as it as it has been before. Um, mm-hmm. I'm kind of going on there, but but you've brought mm-hmm. up so much in in what you've just shared, <laughs> and um, <laughs> and so um, before I go any further, though, I want to I just want to point everybody's attention to. Um, the National uh, Crime and the Council, excuse me, the National Council on Crime and Delinquency website, which is nccdglobal.org, and then you can find the Restorative Justice Project within there. Um, so, if you wouldn't mind talking a little bit, Sujata, about about this uh, recent grant and um, what it means to you to hold a victim and an offender in equal um, concern. Mm. So uh, the grant is, I'm so excited about it, it's from the Office of Victims of Crime, which is a part of the Department of Justice. And when, it, when, the, when the RFP came out for the grant, I, I, I mean, I literally had to like blink. I was like looking at the screen thinking, is this real? Because this is exactly what I care so, 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 so deeply about, um, which is the way they term, termed it was victim-centered 
uh, culturally responsive restorative justice program. So it's a, it's a grant to survey the nation to locate the uh, programs out there that are, first of all, I mean, we're gonna, there isn't a comprehensive survey of the restorative justice programs going on generally. And then within that, to start to tease out who is truly attending to the needs of survivors of crime and mm -hmm. who is uh, doing it in culturally responsive ways. And there's also a focus on looking at um, American Indian and, and Alaska Native populations, looking at youth, youth of color in urban areas. Um, so this is, this is what I care about more than this. This conglomeration of things is really just what I, I think and talk about all the time. And so the fact that just out of the blue, out of nowhere, the federal government was going to fund somebody to think about this uh, for, for 18 months and to work on a report about it. And my work has been so much more actually with people doing the processes, facilitating the things, setting up programs, um, to have a little time to slow down and reflect and to interview experts and to, uh, I mean, it's just, it's un unbelievable. I am beyond over the moon with joy about this. And so um, one of the reasons I care about it so much is that, you know, there are many, many different definitions of restorative justice. My personal favorite is Howard Zares, uh, which is um, you know, restorative justice's processes to uh, include, involved to the extent possible, all those who have a stake in a specific offense um, to uh, address harms, needs, and obligations, uh, to, and to put things as right as possible. And so that's a paraphrase. <laughs> so that's mm -hmm. the general gist of Howard's definition. And, and, and he has this continuum of restorative practices that you can read about in his little book of restorative justice. And I, I love that continuum. And it's sort of this continuum from non-restorative or pseudo-restorative to fully restorative. And mm -hmm. it asks, uh, six questions, which I think are incredibly important questions, and and the one um, that means the most to me in a lot of ways is: Is it adequately victim-oriented? And I think that there's a way in which we 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 can let that one go a lot in our restorative justice processes, uh, where and I do not mean this in any way to disparage the wonderful work that happens in prisons. And I wish it happened in every single prison in this country where people were given the opportunity to sit down uh, in a circle with others that have harmed and to learn to look at the roots of their offending and the mm. impact of their behavior on others. It's astounding. And when they have these things called survivor restoration panels or, you know, victim impact camps, I always go to those things. And I love mm -hmm. going inside and talking to the guys about my own history of abuse and my transcending my own history of abuse, um, in part because uh, it really helps me to remember that uh, we are really one circle of people. And especially, especially when I talk about child sexual abuse, I can't tell you the number of times a guy will come up to me afterwards and say, I'm in here. You know, for 25 to life, I stabbed this guy who uh, smelled like the cousin who raped me when I was a child. We were in a fight, and the smell, his smell was overwhelming, and I stabbed him to death, and I'm realizing I was solely being triggered about, you know, being raped, mm. repeatedly raped as a child. So, so those groups, they help those guys go places that other guys don't get to go. Other men and women inside do not get to look at the roots of their wrongdoing and, uh, and be held in, in a compassionate place. And and get to those roots through having emotional connection to the people that they harm, to being able to open their hearts to 
what we usually make is this very binary system of the victims are our enemies because they're going to oppose us at our parole board hearing or whatever, right? So this is, um, so, the, I, so, so I just want to give this huge caveat that I love all that stuff and that stuff is great. But on the more restorative end of the spectrum, to my mind, is where we can have face-to-face -face dialogue and participatory decision-making in which the people who were harmed have an actual say in the outcome of any given case, and that the community creates a container to hold the person who has done the harm directly responsible and support that person directly to be directly responsible to the person that they harmed. To me, that is the justice, the beauty of the justice of restorative justice. And so the more and more we can move in that direction, um, that, that really gets me excited. I'm particularly excited about it in communities of color where people are um, really not comfortable with the traditional criminal justice system um, and have had a, an, an incredible history of, of harm done to them um, mm -hmm. by uh, you know, racial disparities in our criminal justice system. And, and right. the list goes on and on. And about the inefficacies and the inadequacies and the and the inequities in our system on the basis of race. And so, um, you know, there are very many survivors out there of all races, of all religions, of all of all backgrounds, who um, don't think that locking up the person who harmed them at all or for excessive periods of time is a benefit to them. And um, and so I'm I'm just really excited to sort of. Uh, do a little bit of digging around and find out who, who's doing what and what's happening off the radar. And maybe people want to stay off the radar. That's okay. Um, but um, but this 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 opportunity from this grant will really give opportunities to look at victim-oriented and um, and culturally responsive uh, approaches to restorative justice. And uh -huh. I think those are two areas we need to do some some deeper digging into. And so I'm pretty honored to have the opportunity to do it. It sounds to me like this is uh, the first of its kind, perhaps in in at least in our country, where and you you have uh, the very capable um, lead on on creating perhaps a base of statistics that that will help uh, to to show the that that there is something to this. Um, I know that one one of the questions that was submitted. Uh, on the web was from uh, from Bridget, and she was wondering about actual and up-to-date statistics on the use of restorative justice in ex existing communities and systems. Um, mm -hmm. And so, this is that a part of what you'll be doing is um, is compiling some data that will then uh, help us to understand the power of of restorative justice practices and and, and integrating them within our systems. Unfortunately, no. That is an entirely separate project that we are trying uh -huh. to start right now. And one of the reasons I came to the National Council on Crime and Delinquency was because I wanted us to be doing more data collection and analysis around the, the programs that have been in effect for a while. I know that, um, uh, that Lauren Abramson's organization is waiting on one of the first studies in the United States. On she, she's been in operation longer than everybody, and she's just doing such a phenomenal job in Baltimore. And uh, so I know there's going to be some stats on her program, um, but we do desperately need, um, you know, especially since funding is so tied to these ideas of evidence-based practices, et cetera, we need concrete recidivism studies, 
victim satisfaction studies, et cetera, et cetera. Lots of organizations keep uh, track of, them, of things themselves, but um, the program that I started in Alameda County, uh, which is a restorative juvenile diversion program, it is um, keeping about 100 kids a year out of the system. I'm no longer with the organization that I started this with. They're, that's with an organization called Community Works West, and they received a multi-year grant to keep 100 young people a year out of the juvenile justice system giving them the opportunity where their victims are so interested to meet face-to-face -face, uh, and repair the harm directly for mid-range to serious crimes like um, uh, burglary, arson, teen dating violence, pretty serious stuff, very serious assaults, uh, things of that nature. So we are using uh, restorative community conferencing, which is basically uh, family group conferencing, New Zealand style. Uh, family group conferencing to address those farms in um, in in Alameda County, and uh, we are now trying to find funding to uh, NCCD would love to study that, and so we have uh, some amazing um, folks who who are able to do that kind of all that statistic stuff that I don't understand as a lawyer. Um, I have some PhD folks here who would be happy to help. Uh, study them, and uh, we need more of that. There's, there are lots of um, studies out of Canada. There are lots of studies out of uh, you know, Europe, um, a, a few studies here, very few. Uh, and generally, they all show that uh, victim satisfaction is increased, recidivism is decreased, et cetera, and, and all the things that mm -hmm. you would want to see out of a better, better system. Um, but mm -hmm. I, I don't personally have any data here yet, and uh, we are definitely trying to start that. This, the OVC grant is more from the perspective of trying to ascertain what, what qualifies as a victim-centered restorative justice program. What would be a culturally response? Who is doing work that is culturally responsive? So it's more of a, mm -hmm. a survey and, and, and a qualitative uh, sort of a sense of who's doing what and, what's, and what is actually meeting these particular criteria. But in terms of those other hard numbers, I couldn't agree with you more that we need them desperately, and we're going to need to find some funding to uh, to do that as well. Well, I love that you point out um, that there are living examples in our world, certainly, um, and mm -hmm. I have noticed a little bit of the data and statistics, certainly um, of note, out of New Zealand with, as you were mentioning, their community conferencing program. and. I believe, and you can correct me if, if this is incorrect, that don't they have um, basically a restorative justice uh, system for their juvenile um, criminal justice system? So basically, yes, that's that's what they have um, as 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 their system, and um, in New yes. Zealand, yes, exactly. So it's working, <laughs> <laughs> and the statistics are showing that um, even in violent cases. Correct. The, that there is yes. a very promising um, outcome. The opening, so. the opening story in the little, the little book of family group conferences, New Zealand style, is astounding. It's a story of of, of um, the sexual assault of a young girl um, by somebody else in her group home, and it is. It really just. Uh, when I first read that story, it was just so beautifully written by Alan McRae and Howard Zare. It's just such a beautiful book um, that I would suggest people reading to see what the power of restorative justice can be when it is uh, systematized and institutionalized. Um, and certainly there are dangers, potential dangers and pitfalls when we institutionalize things. Um, how far do we stray from uh, things indigenous roots and, and where do they lose their power, where do they lose their 
efficacy. I'm not sure what the stats are in terms of disproportionate minority contact there and whether or not it solved the problem. That's something I'd love to do some more research on. Um, but what they have done is shut down their juvenile detention facilities nationwide, which is pretty impressive. So, um, so definitely we want to follow their footsteps um, on, on, in that regard. Well, I just want to pause and, and welcome you if you're just now arriving tonight or um, this is your first time here. We're talking with Sujata Baliga. Um, she is with the National Council on Crime and Delinquency and is leading the Restorative Justice Project. She wrote an incredible article, which I'd love to get into here in a moment with you, Sujata. And that's um, in the Tikkun. Uh, January winter restorative justice feature issue and the story in that in that uh, article is just profound so um, if you would like to find out more information about Sujata's work uh, to go to nccdglobal.org and also just a few notes about some upcoming appearances she's making she'll be at UC Berkeley um, UC Berkeley Law, and she's going to be speaking about the law's middle way, mindfulness and restorative justice on October 22nd at 1245 p.m. She also has, has covered a bit about um, the project, uh, the NCCD surveying the nation to locate culturally responsive victim-oriented restorative justice programs and just to mention that that's been funded by the Federal Office of Victims of Crime. So let's, let's go in a little bit here um, more on the string that we were going on, Sujata, and, and, just to, and then um, maybe move into that story. I'd love to hear a story about uh, some of your on-the-ground experience, but maybe this will lead us into that. And that, that is a question that is often asked by even people who have started their own community programs, um, it mm. seems to be a common befuddlement for people uh, of how do you know how do we actually enact restorative justice within our communities? How do we uh, work with politicians? How do we work with the mm. people on the um, mm. inside of the existing systems? What what's the key? To, to raising awareness about the, um, the power of restorative justice on, on a very individual mm. communal level. Do you have some thoughts on Great. that for our Great our question. Did that, come from a, <laughs> yeah, did that come from a caller? Is that a caller's it question? Came or is that a, your... a web question, yes. It did. Okay. Um, so, Dawn. Hi, Dawn. And I, I love this question. So I think, I think where RJ fails to... Um, connect to folks with the power to make RJ happen is when we um, are, are where we're RJ Raras, when we're like restorative justice proselytizers and we come in and we tell people how their system is wrong and we tell them that we have is better and we, and we offend them and they don't want to talk to us anymore. <laughs> where, where, I've been, where I've been successful is when I approach everything restoratively and when I go to a prosecutor and I say, how are you harmed? What do you need? What should we do to repair that harm? And you know what the answer is always? Restorative justice. So you know, when I go to police officers, I go to 
defense attorneys and prosecutors and I say, you know, what would an ideal justice system look like to you? And like you said, Molly, restorativeness is at the core of all of our beings and everybody gives me the same answers. Everybody fashions up a restorative system. And so I start, I start, I tell them a little bit about New Zealand, you know, I tell them about whatever, when I, this is before, how did I get it started in Oakland and in Alameda County was, yeah, by going, sitting in people's offices and listening to them and listening mm -hmm. to their frustration and mm -hmm. asking them what would work better in their minds. And, you know, eventually everybody gets back to the same story. When I was a kid, if I threw a baseball through my neighbor's window, my dad would grab me by the ear and drag uh -huh. me next door and find out how much it costs and pay the man back and redact my allowance until it was paid, right? And so, <laughs> so I mean, we kind of all get that that's the right way to do things, right? Um, and so, um, so it's just continuing the conversation with openness and curiosity without coming to particularly police officers, district attorneys. These folks are traumatized too by what they see every day. Mm -hmm. And they only see one side and they see stuff that's not good over and over and over again. So we really have to come with the, to them with as much compassion as we have towards everyone else. And um, you spoke to that earlier tonight, excuse me, but I just want to say that's <laughs> so beautiful because that ties right back in to your time with His Holiness the Dalai Lama and becoming aligned with, you know, we, we may, some of us perceive that, that the current system um, is, you know the other the, you know those people who have been doing it wrong but we we actually have to look at that and really uh realize that um as you're saying there are allies they're they're human beings um just like us and they're they've been subjected to a system that, like you're saying that has been probably traumatizing to, to them as well and so by looking at them um, as our equals and not trying to convince them and, and approaching it in a way that is an inquiry, like you were saying, curiously, um, instead of trying to go in and tell them what to do, is, is mm -hmm. it seems like an obvious solution, but um, mm -hmm. we, we have to stay conscious of that, don't we? Mm -hmm. so yeah, and we have to be humble. Not, I mean, there's so there's a level of humility right, that's required. And, and, and the Dalai Lama, you know, one of the, my favorite things that he says about the Chinese is that they're his teachers. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's amazing. It, and, he, and he really, this is what I asked him about. How do you forgive? How do you forgive what's ongoing, you know? And uh, a huge part of what he talked about was using it as an opportunity to check his own continued you know, uh, where he still needs to improve as a person. Mm. <laughs> I mean, really astounding. Um, and, and, that, and, and then he didn't eschew righteous indignation as a way to uh, fight oppression. I mean, that's what's so amazing is that we can do both at the same time, um, but we really have to check our egos at the door, and he's very good at that. So mm. I think the other thing, too, is inviting people into the circle. So Having so first and foremost, I needed to be guaranteed by the district attorney that nothing that young people said in these processes would be used against them in a court of law, and then I invited them in. And you refer me a case, we're going to sit down and do this this serious drunk driving case, this um, arson, this whatever, and we're going to invite 
invite the chief district attorney for the juvenile division into the circle. I have seen the man shed tears. Uh, and this is someone who people say is sort of notoriously tough on crime and will uh, direct file on young children, charge children as adults. Um, and, and I've seen emotion in him in those circles that is just, I mean, he's a beautiful human being just like everyone else. And um, so really inviting people into the process. And I say this with a caveat, if and only if you have put into place the, the legal protections that are needed to That's make sure right. that if the process breaks down, that somebody's not going to turn around and use that against that kid. That is, or the victim. Often victims are coming into these spaces um, with sometimes the history of these situations are messy, especially with mutual assault cases. And, um, and sometimes victims are really not interested in the criminal justice system um, and uh, don't want to be made a witness against the young person who harmed them if the process breaks down, right? So you have to be smart and, and, and work with defense lawyers or whoever you need to work with in order to put into place airtight legal protections for your restorative justice process. Mm -hmm. Now let's just say that I was Don, you know, um, who asked a question, and uh, Don and, and uh, or myself and, and another person from that community we're sitting here highly inspired, um, somewhat, you know, maybe not, not a whole lot of training um, in circle processes, maybe not in mediation or anything else, but nonetheless we know that we want to contribute to um, creating programming in our community that doesn't yet have it. Um, where, mm -hmm. What would be the first steps? Again, I know you said you went and sat a, a lot with in, in Oakland and listened to um, to people in various aspects of the system. Do you have anything else that you would suggest for people? Mm. Uh, well, we had the good fortune of a judge who got really interested early on in restorative justice, and we went and presented to her. Restorative Justice for Oakland Youth is the organization I used to work with. They're wonderful here in Oakland. And I, uh, some members of our joy went and talked to Judge Gail Barriola, who was then the presiding judge of the juvenile division. And she got so excited about restorative justice that she started a restorative juvenile justice task force. And when the presiding judge of the juvenile division starts a task force, everybody comes. So the chief of you know, probation would show up. Everybody would show up. And so that was really helpful because then I just had everybody there that needed to get educated. We all did, and we would just take turns doing little RJ101s until we came to the point where we used restorative processes to create a three-year strategic plan. Um, and so that, you know, so getting community buy-in one way or another. Um, and if you can't do that, and if you have total opposition from sort of on high, start circles in your communities. Start mm -hmm. restorative justice sort of opportunities, and really just circle, 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 circle. I think it's so useful um, mm -hmm. in, because it is such an egalitarian way of power sharing and, and idea sharing um, up front. I think that the more you can really be wedded to a set of shared values that you create through circle and starting to explore the stuff through circle is great. Um, I also, uh, and, and then at a certain point, things need to get done that don't work well in circle, and then you, you need to come up with plans of action, et cetera. Um, but yeah, I would, I would just encourage engaging, engaging everyone um, mm -hmm. with a smile. <laughs> and, That's uh, great. I engaging love that everybody. Yeah. If it, like if you are meeting resistance initially within you know, the places that you, you might be outreaching to in your community, you can still bring the power to you and the people within your community, given that there's no uh, scarcity of conflict 
in our own lives, That's right. in our lives as a community, right? So we can we That's can actually place a stake together if we're committed enough to this, because it's not easy, because um, it also brings up our own stuff um, in yeah. in circle. But but nonetheless, like you're saying, it's a, it's a, a process of equanimity and a process of um, of holding each other in, in a, a way that you know maybe we're not used to because we haven't seen it That's really. Right. So, That's right. Um, so for Don, I, I you would, know, he yeah yeah. Go uh, ahead. Please go ahead. I would yeah, um I just, yeah. Please go ahead. Please. Yeah, I I think my um my phone may be. I hope my hope the sound is okay here for everyone. Um, I I was just saying that that with for someone like Don, um, you know that that is exactly like what you're saying would be if I were to answer that question. I would I would have have probably said the same thing, and also um, just to point out uh, a couple useful resources, of course, like you have tonight would be um, maybe to look at the Longmont Community Justice Project, um, which is in Longmont, Colorado, and the the town of Estes Park, Colorado, where the police uh, department is on board, and even have videos on YouTube. Acknowledging the oh, I've power seen of justice. What? Those are amazing. I've seen, I've seen those. Those are, are amazing. So <laughs> I, I would highly recommend checking those out. Um, and I, I actually will post them on the Do Peace page. But um, so since we're we're at the three quarters mark here tonight with our council, I just want to remind people: if you have a comment or a question for uh, Sujata tonight, please press one on your keypad. And um, I'd just like to kind of seg, uh, if we could, into uh, the article that you wrote because mm-hmm. it has a powerful story within it. And also, just to acknowledge, um, you know, the beautiful work that you've done with Howard. There, it sounds like the two of you have a colleagueship that is um, is extraordinary, and an, uh, perhaps a network of people that that you work with throughout the the country. And in this particular article, you you start it by describing a call that you got from him. So mm-hmm. um, would you like to share a little bit about this story sure. and, and what happened? I'd, I'd love to. I, um, I just want to say I don't know if he's still on the line, but I just got a message from uh, Andy Gromare, uh, who's the father in this story, uh, that he was going to be listening in. So um, Andy, if you're out there, I'm sending you my love. Um, and uh, so I got a call I from uh, with us tonight. I, in fact, um, <laughs> yeah, Andy, welcome. I'm I'm so moved by the fact that you're here with us. And uh, if you'd like to to chime in on anything, Andy, um, just press one on your keypad tonight, okay? So go ahead, Sujata. Yeah, so I got a call from Howard uh, that he'd received a phone call from um, the mother of a young man who had recently uh, shot and killed his his fiance, and he was 19 years old. Um, and uh, Howard said, um, what, "What you know? What, what do you think?" And I and I said, "It was in Tallahassee. You know, it's it it just happened a few months ago. It's it's an impossibility. It's a, you know probably being charged as a capital crime." Um, and um, I don't, I, you know, no, <laughs> you know, basically. 
Howard, are you crazy? <laughs> I think. Um, and he said, no, 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 you know, I just want you to talk to this uh, sweet woman and tell her why this isn't going to happen. And so I said, sure, you can give her my number. She calls me, Julie McBride uh, is her name, and she was wonderful, tenacious, um, kept after me uh, until, you know, and I, I just had to say, you know, Julie, I just, it can't work. Um, you know, we do victim offender dialogues is what they're called in crimes of severe violence after the person's been sentenced and all the appeals are run down like 15 years from now. But, and I do this pre-adjudication model, but this is with a, a relationship with the district attorney where they're giving me these cases. Um, and uh, sort of with a blessing, this is, this, and, and, and we're not doing murder yet. <laughs> Certainly not, you know. And so, um, so she, um, she said, well, just, just talk to the Gromers. Just And I said, well, you know, I'm not going to cold call these people who just lost their daughter. That's crazy. And she said, no, no, they're the ones who told me about restorative justice. And I said, wait, when? And she said, you know, last week or two weeks. So it turns out that they had just had breakfast together. And I said, what are you talking about? You're sitting down and having breakfast with the parents of the girl who your son murdered? And... Um, and she said, you know, yeah, they're remarkable people. I think you're going to fall in love with them, and I think you're going to want to work on this case. And, and I said, well, you can give them my number, but there's nothing I can do for you. And, uh, you know, I think it was within hours or maybe it was the next day, and Andy can tell, tell, tell uh, the accurate facts on that. But I, um, I got a call from, from, from Kate and Andy Gromer, who had lost their daughter uh, in April of 2010. And... Um, uh, I don't know, by the end of the conversation, whatever it was that they wanted to have happen was going to happen because I had just fallen completely in love with them. They were the most remarkable uh, people. Um, they had uh, forgiven Connor already and, and gone to his jail, visited him, told him this, uh, but were unable, because of the legal posture of things, to talk about the facts of the case. And um, they didn't want to see this go to trial. They didn't need their daughter's uh, relationship and business out there in the world, and that's what a trial of this nature would have been like. Uh, it would have been nothing but disrespectful to Anne, certainly. Um, and uh, I think that they wanted to see a plea deal, but I think they they felt that restorative justice required that they be an integral part of the decision-making process. And so um, over the course of the next few weeks and months, uh, working with the defense attorney to figure out sort of the legal posture, it was, there was a phone conference at one point with the defense attorney and uh, the Gromers, the, the McBrides, they all met in an office together and called me. And, um, and we kind of came up with this idea of using the plea pre-conference, pre-plea conference, which is usually a conversation between defense counsel and the prosecutor, and they go back and forth and duke it out. and come up with a number which you take back to the defendant and say this is the best deal you're going to get and take it or leave it and um, instead of that happening we had a circle we had a we had it was more of a family group conference really uh, inside Connor's jail um, and it was really the, some of the most remarkable five hours I've ever spent um, wow. instead of it being a story of what Connor did and didn't do, which is what a trial would be about, proving first degree or second degree murder or manslaughter or disproving it or coming up with legal justifications and excuses. Uh, it became the story of Anne, and it started with the story of Anne, and it started with prayer, and then it, and then it went to the story of Anne, uh, told by Kate and Andy, who she was to them, what they lost, 
Uh, and the centerpiece of a circle, for those of you who've been in circle, you know, it was all mementos of Anne's life, um, a beautiful plaster cast of her hand that was made by friends of the Gromeres while Anne lay dying in her hospital room, right? So um, just, just really, it was the story of Anne and what was lost. And then um, instead of Connor having to answer to attorneys and silenced by attorneys, uh, the Gromeres got to ask questions of Connor. And so that was just really, uh, to me, that's the way what justice should look like. And then um, what was most astounding, of course, was what the Gromeres felt that they needed in the wake of this crime. And it wasn't to see Connor locked up for the rest of his life. It was really about what can be done to repair the irreparable, um, what steps need to be taken in that direction. Um, and um, one of the things that they had asked for, and hopefully will happen someday, is that Connor might be released uh, from prison from time to time to speak in high schools with them, of course in shackles, um, about taking their daughter's lives, uh, their daughter's life, and and uh, really becoming sort of a voice for ending teen dating violence. Um, and and there were other things, really things that would honor Anne's memory uh, far more than him serving an additional, you know. 20, 40, 60, whatever years. And in the end, uh, while the DA had come, originally I guess it had been a capital case, it got reduced pretty quickly to second degree murder uh, uh, when the facts became more clear. Um, and uh, in the end, the DA ended up, even though the Gromeres had asked for only 10 years, uh, the DA came down to 20, which was pretty remarkable for the panhandle of, of, of uh, Florida. Um, but so that's, that's the story in a nutshell. Um, it was really an incredible honor to get to know everyone involved, uh, not the least of whom was Anne, the memory of Anne. And um, that, I think, was really one of the most amazing parts of it was to get to know someone, uh, know about someone uh, through the eyes of all these people who cared deeply about her, and including the person who took her life. Connor was very um, willing to take responsibility for what he did and is continuing to, I stay in touch with him as well, and continuing to work on understanding the roots of how he did the harm he did and, and trying to make his life, he'll, he'll get out. He will live on the outside. And what does that life look like to honor Anne and to honor uh, the incredible gift of forgiveness that the Gromeres gave him? What does that look like? And what does he need to do during the next, I guess it's probably 18 years left of his incarceration to, um, to make himself uh, the person he needs to be to honor the memory of Anne? Wow, this is, it's just so moving to feel, uh, I felt like I was in that space with you all, um, and mm -hmm. to, you know, to really, uh, the question for me that comes up um, is what keeps us from, from being able to cultivate this space together, um, and, and uh, you know, to to, you know it feels like it should be obvious that that we we really need to move into a, a, a space like that, that that which if you're describing after something so unthinkable happens and yet um, it seems our maybe even our encoding is more towards the, the punishment aspect of of things, and so it's almost like it's counterintuitive. But how uh, how do we how do we cultivate this space of safety and knowing that 
we're not excusing people from, you know, from what has happened. We're, you know, we are holding them accountable, but, but we, you know, but this is the, the, the next place that we can go in order to, um, you know, to find what, what might be called true justice, true, true, true possibilities for healing. You know, what comes to mind, Molly, is one of the, interestingly, it comes back to the Tibetan system of justice. One of the most beautiful parts of their system um, in the 1930s, um, and uh, it was, was, and 40s, what, what was beautiful about it was that there's no finality to cases. So it's kind of hard to get your brain around because we're so about like, then this appeal is done, is this appeal is done, and then it's over, and it's final, right? The judgment and the conviction are final. But the lack of finality to me is the greatest, and just putting this together now, um, <laughs> is, the, is the greatest um, acknowledgement of the reality for survivors. So the Gromers are remarkable people who forgave instantly. I was not so remarkable about my father, <laughs> right? And granted, I was a child, and he passed away when I was 16, and that was that was an unfair statement to myself. Um, and I came to forgiveness pretty early in life, and for which I'm super grateful. Um, mm-hmm. But um, and I don't, and I and I also want to put in the caveat that I don't think that forgiveness is the is the required outcome of all restorative processes, and mm-hmm. I, I, I tread very lightly on forgiveness. Um, but what this lack of finality with the Tibetan system allowed was that when new facts come out, when something else happens, when there's a shift and something changes, uh, you revisit the situation, right? So we don't, I mean, we don't, so a perfect example is, is a, a friend of mine, she's an amazing woman, um, was, a, a, was the wife of a police officer, uh, very conservative at that time, um, in her thinking around criminal justice issues. He was murdered, and she was the like biggest rah-rah for him getting the death sentence that he did get. And she testified uh, on the stand asking, begging the jury to kill her husband's killer. Five years later, she has a complete change of heart, and now she's forgiven him, and she wants him to forgive her for having helped wow. put him on death row, and she's trying to figure out a way to have a dialogue, except for he's so early in his appellate process in California that he can't talk directly to her, even if he did want to confess. If there's an innocence, whatever, he's sitting on death row, and we are having trouble getting that dialogue moving because of the legal wow. system. It's preventing this victim, this survivor, this amazing woman from being able to talk to her husband's killer, right? Um, right. And if there's no space in our system to be like, whoops, I was angry then, but I'm not angry anymore. <laughs> you know? right. um, and, right. and, and I don't mean to make light of any of this, you know. Um, I, I don't, I don't. I can, I can no, be a little not. bit jokey about it because this is what I spend my life doing. But I, I, I think that one of the things that's really lacking is this capacity to give survivors space for their own healing trajectories. And I know that we can't have due process, and at the same time, you know, what if the it will never happen? But what if the Gromers turn around and said, actually, we're really angry now. We want them to get the death sentence. We can't do it in that direction, right? And again, the Gromers would never say that. But, um, but it is it. I think that where we we fail is in the rigidity of our system, 
um, and that we we don't allow for the space for the, the healing trajectory of survivors and how their needs may change. Um, I think that's one of the big shortcomings mm. and one of the great wisdoms of the Tibetan system. It was particularly effective where you find out new facts later, right? Um, and there are ways you can kind of reopen things if there's new facts, but they have to be legally um, relevant facts to the, to the disposition of the case. Instead of it being spiritually or emotionally uh, relevant facts for victims, uh, survivors, uh, transcenders, <laughs> and whatever, wherever they are in their journey. And I, I love that, um, the, the, that there is no finality in that paradigm from the Tibetan system because it also allows for, I think I, I went on a little bit about um, the idea that these things can't be forced and they have their own timing and their own uniqueness. Um, we are each individual human beings with our, you know, with our own stories and our own journeys. And so um, whether victim or perpetrator, you know, there's, there's a bigger, bigger story moving through us that, um, you know, may not have the, you know, as the group here in my community was saying, um, the, the kind of timing that the system requires us to have, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> we, we, we can't, mm -hmm. we can't jam into, uh, a pre, you know, between the pre-sentencing and the sentencing, um, a resolution necessarily with with some of the mm -hmm. wounding that occurs and and so the it 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 sounds to me like what it, it it's coming to is also just us us uplifting um, in in our consciousness surrounding uh, wounding cycles that that perpetrators also are wounded that 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 um, that doesn't take away from you know, being, you know, having it be very much tending to the victim, um, but that, you know, that, that there's a, a much bigger picture at play here. Um, mm -hmm. That's one of the other things a, that I know we're, we're running out of time here tonight, but, but one of the last mm -hmm. things that I'd love to hear from you about was, is um, what, how do you approach when, um, when, when a victim feels that restorative justice is unfair to them. Do you have cases mm. like that where, where they might say, "Well, you're you're focusing on the perpetrator, and that's you know that makes me feel disempowered and not valued in my process." Great question. So I am extremely lucky to have not yet been faced with that. There was one case where it started out that way, and I think that when you're doing restorative justice right, that's just not true. It's not at all true, and this is so much of why I'm excited about this OVC grant, is that it's time to recalibrate restorative justice back to the arena of meeting victim-identified victim needs. Um, that that's what we're supposed to be doing here. And where we're not doing that, we're not doing restorative justice, right? So, um, that, that, so I, I feel lucky in that regard um, where... Uh, you know, where, where I just haven't really had to answer to, I've only had people say, maybe I don't want to be there directly, I'll write a letter, maybe I'll, mm -hmm. uh, can, can my husband come instead, can, you know, and so we, we work with victims to make this as comfortable for them as they, uh, as, whatever they need, basically. Uh, mm -hmm. do, you need a, do you need a one-way mirror? Do you need to do this, you know, over the phone? Do you want, the first one we did, people really thought that they needed a screen in the middle of the room because both sides were afraid of gang affiliation on the other side. 
turns out none of that was true. And by the end, there was no screen and everybody was hugging. <laughs> he had an exchanging phone numbers. And, but, um, but, it, but, yeah, I mean, just attending to victims' needs and concerns really is just so, 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 so critical. And, you know, it's been my experience that when we do that from the get-go, when we come with this, um, with this feeling of what do you need, uh, as the first option, of the first line of communication, right, rather than how victims are currently uh, met with the traditional criminal justice system, we're going to try to get the death penalty for, your, for, the, for the memory of your child. Well, you didn't ask them what they wanted. And if you did, you might get some different answers than you expect. You know, I, I think one of the most beautiful uh, expressions of this is this man, Akila Shirils, A-Q-E-E-L-A. Oh, he's um, so wonderful. Yeah, and he, he does a great job of explaining his, the loss of his child to gun violence. And, um, and, and, you know, what does his community need to heal in Watts in L.A.? Um, and you can see videos of him speaking on this website called safeandjust.org, uh, www.safeandjust.org. And he's really trying to build this voice for survivors who have a different thing to say in California. It's a California-specific thing. But it's... Um, it's, it, when we ask people what they need and want up front, you'd be surprised at the different answers that you get than what you expect. Mm. That's a huge and critical place uh, for us all to remember to, you know, to make sure that that they get the ten they they are tended to, and inquired with with that perhaps that same curiosity um, of you know again what do you need what what would you know if if justice were to be served. What would it look like to you as as perhaps the beginning of the conversation and um and the listening and then also the um you know the sense of, of that there's a safe container for them that they're safe to to um express whatever it is that that is true for them is that true mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely. One of the best trainings you can get to develop that muscle is the defense initiated victim outreach training that's done by the federal uh a capital defender, I think Kelly Branham, Nicole Branham is her name, that she runs those trainings. And it really is this amazing uh, training in how to bring an open heart and mind to whatever you hear from victims, from punitive to forgiving and everything in the middle. How do we engage uh, victims um, in a way that meets uh, at least, if we can't, and we're not making any promises we're going to be able to meet all their needs, right? If somebody comes, a burglary victim says, I want my burglar to get the death penalty, and that's beyond the bounds of our Constitution, right? But, mm-hmm. but really just a, in, a, approaching uh, survivors with, with an open-hearted curiosity and checking our um, assumptions at the door, our politics at the door, um, all of that, checking it at the door and coming with an open heart. Well, I know I've kept you longer than uh, our hour, Samantha, but this conversation with you has been so rich. I wish we uh, could could go further, but want to be respectful of your time as well as to our members of the council tonight. Um, but I do want to invite everyone to please check out uh, the nccdglobal.org website. Um, there's a little blog spot um, on the left-hand column of, of that main landing page that will lead you to more information about Kujata's work with the Restorative Justice Project. 
And if you're in the Bay Area, too, don't forget that she'll be at UC Berkeley on October 22nd at uh, 12.45 p.m. Um, so it's it's just been so wonderful to have you with us tonight, Sujata, and thank you so much for your time. And um, oh, as, my as pleasure. always, we will um, we'll be posting this archive at the Do Peace website. That's dopeace.org. And if anybody would like to stay in touch with Sujata, um, can people get a hold of you in a particular way, or would you prefer that maybe posts could be made somewhere, um, whether it be at the Do Peace discussion board, or do you have any preferences with that, Sujata? That would that would be best on the if there was some place to post where you know I could peek in at it, but also you, there are ways to uh, there's a connect to people through the NCCD global um, website. Uh, there's a way to if you click on something it emails me, um, but yeah, so that that would be great. Wonderful. Well, and I just want to thank everyone tonight for joining us from wherever you are in the world and. Um, at some point, I'm hoping that I might have the honor of talking with Andy and family if they're interested in coming on to uh, join us in this conversation. So good night, everyone, and thank you so much for being a part of Restorative Justice on the Rise. Thank you, and have a great evening. And thank you so much, Sujata. Good night. My pleasure. Thank you. Good night.